Romans 3, verse 9 through chapter 4, verse 25. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church of Rome, says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an empty grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, their feet are swift to shed blood, in their path are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be account, held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, Of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. 
Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is not the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs. Faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all of his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God, of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls existence into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not wink in, in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, having heard your word, we pray that now in these next uh, moments that the, the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing to you, O Lord our rock, and our redeemer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have just come off of a series on the Ten Commandments in the Christian life and um, just spent 15 weeks looking at the law of God as revealed in the, the Ten Commandments, both from Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. And as we were teaching through the series, you noticed that it coincided with the Baptist catechism questions that we had been going through um, since, uh, since September. 
And so as the series was coming to an end, I was thinking, well, what, what should come next? I've always tried to think in advance of what kind of sermon series we should do. And it, uh, it just hit me about three or four weeks ago, why don't I just kind of continue on with the catechism questions? Because there's a reason why the catechism was arranged in its, the way that it was in addressing the Ten Commandments. And there are some really great questions that come after it that help to drive home its importance for the life of the Christian. And so this morning, I would like to just make as our, the sermon outline, the next six questions in the catechism, uh, the London Baptist Catechism. And so that'll be kind of the, the flow for our sermon this morning, because it's asking the logical questions that come after um, the Ten Commandments. Okay, so what does this mean? So let's look at those together. Let's look at the first one this morning. And I'm kind of giving a, the outline here. You could follow along uh, in the handout. The outline here is kind of a summary way of asking the question from the catechism. Can, this is a simple question here, after having looked at all of the Ten Commandments and what they permit and what they forbid and the reasons attached to them, the logical question would be then, can man perfectly keep God's law? Can man perfectly keep God's law? And the answer to this is no, quite simply no. No human person is able to keep God's law. We saw this in our scripture reading today, chapter uh, 9, or excuse me, chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, is quite a litany the Apostle Paul pulls together from various Old Testament texts to show that no, no human being has the capacity in themselves to follow God's law. No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks after God. And it's interesting that he says in that we've already charged this in verse 9. You know, are, are Jews better off? He, he, so he begins Romans by talking about the condemnation that comes to the pagans and their sinfulness and the evil of their hearts and the condemnation is due to them. And then the Apostle Paul actually turns this around now and he goes, but, but you, you Jews who have received the moral law, you should not be too boastful about this because how well do you do it? And he asks some questions that exposes them to show you, you actually don't, do you? When it says, do not steal, do you steal? And he drives home the point that no one is able to keep all of God's law. Chapter 3, verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. Verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even in the Old Testament, you could see this in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw, this is before the flood, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Or Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we saw this several weeks ago. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. 
Or James chapter 2, verse 10 puts it this way. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. God does not grade on a curve. So our catechism question puts this quite simply. Is any man able perfectly to keep the commandments of God? And the answer is no near man since the fall is able in this life perfectly to keep the commandments of God, but doth daily break them in thought, word, and deed. I love this question because it sweeps away any pride or boastfulness that we might tend to have nurturing in our soul. That we, we're pretty good people. The answer to this question here summarizes that what the scripture has been teaching us, the various passages that we had read here, that we are not able, not in this life, and certainly not since the fall. Because I've heard this question too. Well, why did God make it so man could not keep his commands? Well, the answer is that he did make it so that Adam could keep his commands. It was quite possible for Adam to have not sinned. But it was likewise, it was possible for him to have sinned. And indeed he did. And now every single one of us shares that nature with Adam. It is now since the fall not possible for us to sin. And I want you to notice in that answer there, no mere man. That little word mere is so important. Because the Lord Jesus Christ himself was perfectly able to keep the commandments of God. Remember in John's gospel, when he says, which of you convicts me of sin? Elsewhere, he had said, I do all that the Father has commanded me, so that the world will know that I love the Father. And in John chapter 17, he prayed I, to the Father, I glorified on you, you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. You ever thought about Jesus Christ coming to earth and doing all all of God's perfect moral law perfectly every single moment. The writer of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. A little later in Hebrews, it says that this high priest was holy, innocent, unsaned, and separated from sinners. Peter says that he committed no sin. And there was no deceit found in his mouth. First John chapter 3. He appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Think about that. The, the incarnation and virgin birth of Jesus Christ and being truly God and truly a man enables him to keep the commandments of God in his human nature and to do so on behalf of his elect. To do so on behalf of sinners who couldn't. To do so for the sinners who would trust in him. I love this line. This is one of my favorite scriptures in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And for those of you who've been at Redeemer for a long time, they're like, I, you've said that so many times. You've got a lot of favorite scripture verses. But this is really one of them. The Apostle Paul says, for our sake, he, 
And this first he is referring to God. He made him, that meaning Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This beautiful exchange that Jesus Christ coming to earth and not knowing any sins, yet he, the Lord had made him to be sin on our behalf so that we who are sinners might become the righteousness of God. We'll come back to this in a moment. So can man perfectly keep God's law? Well, no, no mere man can. So I like that this leads to the next question here is, well, are some sins worse than others? Are some sins worse than others? And the answer here is, well, yes, yes, but. Okay, yes, but. There does seem to be in Scripture different severities of sin. You remember back in John's series when Jesus is brought before Pilate? Where the Jews had plotted to arrest Jesus and trump up charges against him and then to bring him to the Roman authorities and then Jesus is brought to Pilate's house. And so Pilate is asking him questions. Jesus refuses to answer Pilate. So Pilate says to him, will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over, over me at all unless it, had been given, if it, unless it had been given to you from above. And then he said these, these words here. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Has a greater sin. Now the assumption there is that in Jesus' mind, at least, he has an understanding of some sins that are worse than others. Pilate would, is guilty of sin, but those who brought him are guilty of a greater one. You can see a similar thing, too, about when Jesus talked about judging your brother and examining them with the speck that they have in the eye, but you have a log in yours. It only makes sense if there's a difference between a speck and a log. Or what about this passage in Matthew chapter 23? And this is that um, Jesus is dealing with the religious uh, leaders at that time, and he's issuing these condemnation, these woes against the, them at this time. And he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and uh, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus clearly says there's, there's weightier matters. Justice and mercy and faithfulness are weighted heavier than tithing out of your spice rack. Which they did. They did well, but what they didn't do well was justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and therefore the condemnation was upon them. Similarly, as we saw through our series in Leviticus, there were varieties of sacrifices for different purposes for different types of sins that were committed. 
And even in the Old Testament, there are, there are sins that are committed by people, and then there's some that are sins with a high hand, just defiant sins. And so here in the catechism question, it says this, are all transgressions of the law equally heinous? And the answer is, well, some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. So are some sins worse than others? The answer is yes, but I, I said yes, but. Yes, but. So now don't go away. Whew, that's a relief. I'm doing pretty well. Right? Because look at the next question. What does every sin deserve? What does every sin deserve? death the question the catechism question and it's helpful to look at both question 88 and 89 what does every sin deserve question 89 every sin deserves god's wrath and curse both in this life and that which is to come every sin even the smallest of sins deserves god's wrath and curse in this life and the one that is to come. The, the, the Bible does describe God's attitude towards sin as anger and wrath and indignation and fury. God hates sin. And contrary to a very popular dictum, God actually hates unrepentant sinners. God's wrath However, it needs to be remembered that in the perfect nature of who God is, his wrath is not an uncontrolled passion or anger like we would experience it. He doesn't fly into uncontrolled rage. No, his wrath against sin and stubborn sinners is wise. It is righteous. It is measured. It's not cruel or uncontrolled. Sin is ultimately a violation, and the reason why he, he reacts this way is because sin is ultimately a violation of his very essence and being. It's a, a violation against him, not some abstract standard. The moral law is implanted on every human heart, and it is not grounded on some arbitrary code. It is grounded in the right, the very being of God himself. So guilty sinners deserve wrath, and guilty sinners deserve a curse from God. You might remember the story of the parable it's kind of a parable. It's more of a story, but they, it's often referred to as the parable of the sheep and the goats. Where the king's going to come and he's going to sort them. And he's sorting them like sheep and the goats. And he puts the goats on his left and to the sheep on the right. And he says to the sheep, uh, come into the kingdom. And they object. They're like, well, you know, when did we see you poor naked? And you know the story, right? And he says, welcome to the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. But then he turns to the goats, the ones that are on his left, and he says uh, these words. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed. Cursed. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. Is it cursed or cursed? Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
And it's interesting at this point, to those on his right, he said, come to the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. He does not say the similar here. He doesn't say, come to the eternal for fire prepared for you from before the foundation of the world, but to the devil prepared for his devil and his angels. But either way, the ones on his left are cursed. They're deserving all sin and all sinners are deserving of God's wrath and his curse. And not only is the curse reserved for sinners who reject God, like you would think like of atheists or uh, extremely immoral persons or something. No, the curse is reserved for those who think they can gain his approval. Those who think they can gain righteous standing before them if they just work hard enough at keeping the law. Because look at the language of the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Again, the New Testament is very clear. God does not grade on a curve. All things, if you fulfill all of the law, remember as James said, but fall at one little point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. Are some sins worse than others? Yes, but every sin, what does every sin deserve? Every sin deserves wrath. Now it's helpful at this point to come back to this verse I just mentioned. Colossians, or excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Because Christ takes that sin. Christ Jesus takes God's wrath. Christ Jesus takes that curse. Again, for, he, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Or in the verses just following from the Galatians passage we just read, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law for, quoting the Old Testament, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Did you catch that in verse 13? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By being cursed. And what the Apostle Paul here says to this church in Galatians is truly astounding. Going back to Deuteronomy, saying, this is a quote from Deuteronomy that said, anyone who was hanged on a tree is cursed by God. And the Apostle Paul is putting all of these, these strands through the scriptural story together and is saying, Jesus was hung on a tree. 
And in so doing, he is receiving the curse of God. Have you ever thought about Jesus being cursed, damned in that moment? Receiving the damnation that you should be receiving. As he's in agony hanging on that, what we often call a cross through a lot of the New Testament letters call the cross. But if you do a word study on this and you go look at how in the book of Acts, as they're preaching about the work of Jesus Christ, they use the word tree. He was hung on a tree. Obviously, driving home this Old Testament connection that he indeed was cursed by God on your behalf, in your place, condemned, he stood. So are some sins worse than others? Yes, but every sin deserves God's wrath and curse. And Jesus Christ took God's wrath and he took that curse. So the question then is, well, then how do we escape? That's our next question, number four. Don't you love the logical flow to these questions? And all of them seem to make so much sense one after another, especially after they come on the Ten Commandments. How can we escape? If, if every single one of us deserves God's wrath and his curse, how do we get out from underneath that? Well, we alluded to that a little bit here, is that Christ took that. And the catechism question says this, what doth God require us that we may escape his wrath and curse due to us for sin? To escape the wrath and curse of God due to us for sin, God requireth us, and there's three things I want you to notice here. He requireth of us faith in Jesus Christ, repentance unto life, with the diligent use of all the outward means whereby Christ communicate to us the benefits of redemption. So there are three things I want you to notice there in this answer. What does God require of us? He requires of us faith. He requires of us repentance. And the last one there is the diligent use of means. And we're actually going to look at this one next week. We're going to look at what we call the ordinary means of grace. You probably heard me speak about this before, and I've mentioned it. And you perhaps nod along and go, yes. I don't think I know what that exactly means and totally understand. But next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the third one. But today I want us to, to finish by looking at these two faith and repentance. What does God require us to escape? This is faith. What is faith? That's question 91. Faith is. Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive, I love those. You should write those down, write and underline those. Receive and rest. We receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. This is what makes the gospel the gospel. This is what makes the good news the good news is that God does this work to save us. And that we receive it and rest in it. Part of why we read this chapter 3 and 4 of Romans is because I like how the Apostle Paul says of faith and using Abraham as a model of faith. But he adds these very interesting words at the beginning. Verse 4. Now, 
to the, he's contrasting works and faith. Now, to the one who works, his wages, his reward, are, they're not counted as a gift. How many of you worked for your employer or, you know, client, you know, did some work for a client or something, and then they paid you and you went, thank you for your generosity. How many of you did? How many of you went to your employer and go, when you, they gave you the paycheck and you go, kind sir, thank you. Like, no. No, because that was your compensation. That was your reward. That was your, your work. The Apostle Paul says, if you get wages, that's not a gift. That's not charity. So to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But then contrast works with faith. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So some, some might even say, well, you know, your work that you contribute is faith. No, 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 no. The Apostle Paul explicitly contrasts faith with work here. Faith is receiving. It is a gift. You receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered to you. Not as your due. That's the gift. It's faith in Jesus Christ. And now really quickly, well, what, what is, if you were to define faith even further, what does faith in Jesus Christ look like? You've heard me say these many times before, but they're... Uh, uh, throughout church history, they've kind of identified three parts to saving faith, right? There's knowledge and facts. You have to know the knowledge and facts, the information. Or the, the Latin phrase for this that theologians is noticia, okay? So there's knowledge and facts. And then it's, well, what do you do with those facts? Um, then you agree with them or you assent to the truth of them or the Latin phrase there is a census you know so you don't just have the facts in your head you have to actually now agree with them okay that's the second part but there's a third part of saving faith is faith, saving faith and that is trust or dependence or the Latin phrase fiducia it's trust it's leaning now on the propositions and the truthfulness of those propositions. Now you're relying on it, right? Because remember, even they, the, the demons believe that God exists. They got the first two. They have, they have noticia and ascensus, right? You could see this. It's trust and dependence, and that trust and dependence is on, on an object. It's on the, a person. It's on Jesus Christ. I love the words of the Apostle Paul in Philippians. Um, and again, one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. You can add that. Philippians chapter 3. Um, oh, did I not include it? Maybe I didn't. I did not include it. Oh, that's a bummer. Let me read it to you. Philippians chapter 3. You're, you, can, you can look into this. Um, you can turn there if you would like where the Apostle Paul is writing about, he begins by talking about all that he is able to accomplish as a very good 
obedient, law-observant Jew. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I, Paul says, I have more. And then he lists off his, his CV, his resume. Circumcised on the eighth day. Check. Of the people of Israel. Check. Of the tribe of Benjamin. Ooh, check. A Hebrew of Hebrews. So it means top notch. Check. As to the law, a Pharisee. Ooh, check plus. As to the zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But then he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the sake of, uh, for the, uh, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. He says of all of that, all of the credentialism, all of it worthless, all of it rubbish. And that's an actually a polished up and polite term. In the Greek, it's, it's more like excrement. His entire, his entire upbringing, can you imagine everything that you've endeavored for your entire life as a child, on, college, graduate programs, internships, apprenticeships, years, decades, and decades of pursuing the highest level of achievement and then going, and it's all excrement compared to knowing Christ Jesus through faith in him. In order that I may gain Christ, I would gladly take all of that and exchange it for Christ to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Right? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, because I can't. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's faith. That's what God calls us to. To recognize the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Of noticia, knowledge and facts of the gospel of what God has done for you on your behalf. And then agreement with the truthfulness of it and then relying on it for your eternal salvation. That's good news. That's what's required of us. And then the second one is question 92 is what is required. What is repentance unto life? Remember, there were three and we're looking at two of them today. What is repentance unto life? Repentance unto life is a saving grace whereby a sinner out of the true sense of his sin and apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ doth with grief and hatred of his sin turn from it unto God, 
with full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. Repentance. Faith and repentance. And I, I usually have two kind of aspects to, to repentance here, and this would be like repentance, and here's the, the Greek words here to kind of convey the idea. Um, metanoia means like to, to change one's mind or to change the direction in which you're going. And of course, this is, again, the work of God in you to change your nature to do this. But then you really and truly then change, change the direction your life has been going in rebellion and sin against God. And then to confess it, to it's basically, you know, homologeo, say the same. I confess it. Now, what's the relationship between faith and repentance and which comes first? I, I do want to address this a little bit before we go on. There's, there's a couple of options here. Okay? There's a couple of options. Some will say faith comes first. Because what's the relationship between faith and repentance? Well, faith comes first. William Shedd in his uh, dogmatic theology says, Though faith and repentance are inseparable and simultaneous, yet in the order of nature, faith precedes repentance. So he would argue faith comes first. There are others who would say, well, but repentance comes first. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology says, there is no doubt that logically, he says, repentance and the knowledge of sin precede the faith that yields to Christ in trusting love. Okay? So there's the debate. And, you know, like, and if you, if you, you so you're sitting here, you go, no, faith comes first. No, repentance comes first. No, faith comes first. No. And if you kind of listen to that and you're like, is this a little like how many angels dancing on the head of a pen? I don't want to say it's not that important, but there's a third option I was relieved to find. And here's summarizing. This one is, uh, is a, a guy named John Murray in his book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. If you want, it's a fantastic book. This big. It's amazing. John Murray says, an unnecessary question. And I was like, thank you, John. An unnecessary question and the insistence that one is prior to the other is futile. There is no priority. The faith that is unto salvation is a penitent faith. And the repentance that is unto life is a believing repentance. Saving faith is permeated with repentance and repentance is permeated with saving faith. I love it. And I have always said in answer to this question, to me it seems these are two sides of the same conversionary coin. So in response, what shall we do? What shall we do? Faith, trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, which includes repentance. And that when we repent of our sins, we turn to Jesus Christ as our Savior. And this indeed was the answer to those questions. But looking even through the book of Acts, and as the gospel is presented over and over and over, as Peter is preaching in Acts chapter 2, and the Jewish authorities there and the other Jewish believers at the Feast of Pentecost at this time, they're like, what shall we do? What shall we do? Peter says, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. He doesn't say faith here. But later, they'd say, repent, turn back from your sins, that times of refreshing would come. But later in Acts, it says, what, what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Friends, what must we do? 
We must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from our sins to be saved. Friends, we now get to take this meal that Jesus has given us to remind us of this gospel. Isn't this wonderful news? Isn't this a truly amazing, wonderful gospel that God, the moral law that is an obligation to every single human person, we cannot achieve. And so God sets about to make it possible for us to be saved. And he does this through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives perfectly on our behalf, that he takes our sin and takes God's wrath that we deserve and the curse that we deserve, and he takes it upon himself, and that all who hold out with open hands and rest and receive receive Christ, we now have all of that forgiven. We are reconciled to God and have an eternity with him forever. Amen? Amen? This is the meal Jesus gave us to remind us of that, to nourish us with that truth. So I invite you to stand as we pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this meal that you've given us. And what this marks for us and how in it you communicate to us the blessings that we receive through the work of Christ. That we have a tangible expression of this gospel in this meal that you have given. And we give you thanks as we come to your table. And we pray this in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. Friends, this is for believers in Jesus Christ. You're welcome to come down through the middle of the aisle and come back. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, there is no judgment if you stay at your seat. This is for believers. But I have a meditation for us here from a prayer from the Valley of Vision. Most gracious Father, thou hast prepared for me a feast. And though I am unworthy to sit down as a guest, I wholly rest on the merits of Jesus and hide myself beneath his righteousness. When I hear his tender invitation and see his wondrous grace, I cannot hesitate, but must come to thee in love. By thy spirit, enliven my faith rightly to discern and spiritually to apprehend the Savior. While I gaze upon the emblems of my Savior's death, may I ponder why he died and hear him say, I gave my life to purchase yours. Presented myself an offering to expiate your sin, shed my blood to blot out your guilt, opened my side to make you clean, in endured your curses to set you free, bore your condemnation to satisfy divine justice. In the supper, I remember his eternal love, boundless grace, infinite compassion, agony, cross, redemption, and receive assurance of pardon, adoption, life, glory. Amen.